I hope you've had an opportunity to review this slide. We're using the question and answer box or Q&A box. Please open that if, at this time if you have not done so. Post your questions and comments there. The chat box has been disabled. An evaluation survey is going to be provided to you within the next day or so. Question six on the survey provides uh, the opportunity for you to get a download to print a certificate for having attended. If you're calling in only by phone, you're a listener only, we have your phone number, but we have no way of knowing who you are. If you need to get credit, you're going to need, need to contact InSource at InSource.org or call 800-332-433 by the end of business day today uh, and let staff know. Uh, our archived webinars are uh, found here on this website on our webpage and you can always contact InSource.org for questions. Jill and I do not handle certificate questions. So, okay, Jeff or, or Melena, next please. Good morning, my name is Jeff Whitman. Uh, I work at the Indiana Department of Education and part of my role there is I'm the foster youth specialist along with the school social work specialist. I work in the area of social, emotional and behavioral behavioral wellness at DOE. Uh, prior to that work, I worked um, in the area of mental health and, and social services, uh, primarily with foster children. So I bring a lot of foster care specific experience to my role. Melena? Good morning, my name is Melina Gant and I am the Director of Education Services with DCS and I am also the State ESSA point of contact for the agency. Um, my background is I was an education, um, I was an elementary educator. I taught kindergarten through third grade and then I came to the state and became an education consultant um, with the Ed Services team. And I have been the director since 2014. Great, thank you, Melena. So uh, we have taken ourselves off of uh, off of the camera at this point in time, and, and uh, that way you can focus just on the slides. So we're going to share the presentation back and forth, uh, maybe more seamlessly than some are comfortable with, because we've done this presentation quite a bit together. But one of the things that we want to leave you with or have you come away with is that this is um, an, a collaboration. This, this whole effort is a collaboration. And we want you to know who we are, how to access us, to feel comfortable accessing us, and, and to know that we're, we're still struggling to get this new information out to people, even though we've been doing this now for about three years. So. Um, any information that you feel or any, any person that you feel would benefit from contacting us, feel free to share them or push them our way. So to start off, uh, the Every Student Succeeds Act was signed into law on December 10th of 2015 by President Obama. It did uh, three primary things. Um, it reauthorized the Elementary and Secondary Education Act uh, which was the ESEA. I think this is about the eighth iteration of that plan. Um, it gives states greater control at, over accountability and school improvement, which is always a good thing. And that aims to create transparency regarding achievement gaps of disadvantaged subgroups of students, including foster youth. 
Next slide, please. So one of the things that, that really is, is, high, is a highlight for us about what Every Student Succeed Act does is it really identifies foster youth as a subgroup that is very highly uh, challenged. And so um, we, we've known about and worked with um, homeless children and youth for quite a bit longer than we have uh, with foster children. And now we're starting to step up and, and supply some of the same supports uh, to foster kids because we, we, we know that they have a lot of barriers to overcome. So the new definition is, or, or the, part of the rationale for ESSA is, children in foster care are some of the country's most educationally disadvantaged students. Studies show students in foster care experience school suspensions and expulsions at higher rates than their peers not in foster care, lower standardized test scores in reading and math, high levels of grade retention and dropout, and far lower high school and college graduation rates. And that, and that, um, that quote there comes from the Legal Centers for Foster Care and Education. Um, they put together a highly useful uh, toolkit that, that we uh, have linked on our website. I would highly recommend people interested in the subject to go there uh, to, to, to get that resource. Next slide, please. So the, part of what the Every Student Succeed Act does is it ensures educational stability of foster youth through um, or considering the best interest of foster youth and educational placement. So uh, those two things really guide everything that you're going you're to hear today. Uh, how do we keep an area, and primarily education, how do we keep that area stable in their life? And then what's the process like for deciding what is the best educational placement? And that process is supposed to be collaborative, and the collaborative between the Department of Child Services, our state child welfare agency here in Indiana, and the local education agency, both of whom have pieces of, of information uh, but not the whole puzzle. The school can offer the educational piece and how they have worked with that child successfully or unsuccessfully in the past. And the child welfare agency can offer that piece of, you know, kind of why is this child coming into foster care or why is this child moving within the foster care system? Uh, sometimes our educators don't know that piece. Uh, ESSA also requires uh, that we enroll foster children immediately once we decide where it's best for them to attend. Uh, it requires that we provide transportation for students uh, to the, the best interest uh, determination school. It provides us to share resources and costs to make these things happen. And it also has us collecting data for the first time. Uh, and we'll explain a little bit more about some of the data that we're collecting. Next slide, please. So Melina, you want to introduce yourself and just kind of... Sure. So um, like I said earlier, I am the um, child welfare state point of contact. And uh, as you see, my contact information is there on the screen. And I am open to any type of questions, um, um, feedback, etc. Um, so please feel free to contact me and I will respond as fast as possible. Um, so... Um, part of what the Every Student Succeeds Act requires is that there is a state level point of contact for both the Child Welfare Agency and the Department of Education. And um, 
so those two are required. However, um, another small piece is that once the Department of Child Services identifies local um, point of contacts, then the local school corporations are then required to also um, reciprocate with a point of contact for their each school corporation. And as of, um, I think, oh gosh, I can't remember. It was last year at some point we are at 100% compliance um, with every single school corporation, including our charter schools who have identified a point of contact of, for which um, we can work very collaboratively with to determine the best interest determination for our children. So this is my slide that introduces me as the state point of contact for the education, state education agency. And uh, like the child welfare agency, we are also required to have a separate person at the state level from our McKinney-Vento uh, specialist. So DOE now has a, a person that deals with McKinney-Vento um, and then I deal with, my, with foster care because the uh, the two, while they do have some similarities, they also have some very significant differences. And so Melina and I work very closely together and you'll hear us, I think, refer to uh, we and us a lot. And uh, our information is cross-posted on our different websites uh, to make it accessible uh, for people in a number of different ways. Uh, my contact information is on this slide. You will also see that on the last slide. And uh, want to encourage you again, this is not a formality. We want, we want people to, uh, to make yourselves comfortable contacting us. And uh, sorry for my dog being a little bit rambunctious, uh, but do feel free to contact us and, and let us know how we can be of service to you. Next slide, please. So Melina, you want to take this one? Sorry, it takes me a minute to get the um, <laughs> unmute button to come up. So um, one of the most important pieces of how the Every Student Succeeds Act has changed how we worked is the definition of foster care. So um, it used to be that awaiting foster care was part of the McKinney-Vento uh, definition of homeless and ESSA removed that. Um, and it is now fully encompassed under the ESSA definition of foster care. And so basically, um, it's any time that the 4E agency, which is the child welfare agency, has placement and care responsibility in, of a child. And that means that they are placed away from their parents and guardians. Um, and so any type of out-of-home Chin's adjudicated child, um, or excuse me, child's case, um, would classify that child as a foster child. So that includes foster family homes that would be licensed and unlicensed. It would be emergency shelter care, um, relative home placements, group homes, residential facilities. And um, it, it really doesn't matter if there is any payments being made by the state or whether there are foster 
actual licensed homes. Um, it just matters is if we have removed that child from the home that they were living and we have now placed them in another home because of their engagement and with the child welfare agency. So one of the things that I try to tell people to boil this down is if the Department of Child Services as the state child welfare agency, if they have determined that a child will live in a certain place, whether it be a group home, whether it be a foster home, then that child is a foster child. So the, the important thing to, to realize is, is if the Department of Child Services has determined where that child's gonna, going to live, and if that is the case, then that child is considered by ESSA standards a foster child. Right. So the, the, the part we've already talked about is the requirement on each state to have two state level points of contact for foster care. We have the child welfare state point of contact for foster care, which is Milena. We have this, the state education agency uh, foster care point of contact, which is my, myself. And as Melina alluded to, every local education agency, every local school, corporation, or school, uh, charter school, has identified a person to be a point of contact for foster care. So that means that both Melina and myself can reach out to one person in a school or school corporation when a child is coming into care or moving within foster care to address issues of enrollment, best interest determination, transportation, uh, educational special needs, things like that. That makes our contact with each school a lot more efficient. And then that person at each school knows who to talk with within that school or school corporation for issues related to transportation, um, special education, uh, enrollment, records, all of those kinds of things. So we now have a list and maintain that list um, on our webpage, it's on the DOE webpage, and it's a, a local education agency point of contact list, and it's, it's up and it's public, publicly available, so you know who the person is for each local education agency that is responsible for being involved with foster children. And this is a little bit different than in the past. You're going to hear some things, uh, especially those of you who've been involved in foster care for a while, you're going to hear some things that are different and we want to try to get these different messages across because things aren't done as they always used to be. So uh, I right. think I've covered the rest of the slide. Go ahead, Melina. Um, and I, I just wanted to add that having this one point of contact in the local school corporation has really been quite beneficial because we have the ability to reach out to that one person and communicate about children um, on a regular basis and we don't have the uh, time lap of lapse of trying to find the person that we need to talk to in the school corporation when it pertains to um, say special education and also um, a educational best interest placement so um, it really has made the process much easier for us to uh, get our children into the right educational setting um, timely. And also one other piece to the point of context is it's also streamlined the um, notifications that schools are to receive from the Department of Child Services at any time a child's home placement has changed. That now goes directly to the school point of contact via email rather than being um, mailed through 
um, the snail mail uh, <laughs> or um, sent in with our foster parents. It's actually emailed right away. And so that has also increased our ability to um, have a good working relationship with our local schools and local DCS offices. So um, back in 2016, when um, the foster portion um, of ESSA was implemented, DCS worked with many stakeholders from the Department of Education, our local DCS offices, our local school corporations, um, DOE and DCS leadership. And what we did is we created a checklist that um, was going to be utilized by our established point of contacts. And what that checklist consisted of is all the criteria of things that we really need to take into consideration when we're looking at the best interests of a child and whether or not um, there's justification to change a child from their school of origin to their school of transition or school of residences. Um, you'll hear it referred to it either way. It's basically, um, school of origin is the last school of which the child attended, um, either with, at the time of initial removal by child welfare or um, the last school that they were enrolled in um, after being in foster placement. So that is what the definition of school of origin is. And um, one thing to keep in mind is that we work with our school of origin because they are the ones that have the most information as well as they are the ones responsible for um, any transportation if it is determined that the child will remain in their school of origin. Um, so another part of the whole checklist was we really want to make sure that we have enough justification um, we have enough justification if we decide that it is time to transfer the child. So the SS basically says, stay in the school of origin unless there's justification that proves that the school of transition is the more likely um, best interest. And we do have a comment that um, from someone that's saying that they love the checklist um, and that there um, seem to be problems that arise that cause it to be um, not timely and consistent with all parties involved. And um, I will tell you that we are actually working on yet another form of the checklist. And what it will do is it will condense it down to where it's basically going to be the second page of the checklist and the first page is going to be put into policy as our process. Um, so that that'll decrease the amount of time it takes to actually complete the checklist and get it over to our point of contacts in the school corporations. And um, so that kind of segues right into the fact that this form had had many different versions of it and we are continually working to make sure that we're taking that feedback that we receive from our stakeholders, which is our schools, our families, our, you know, our local offices, DOE, DCS, leadership, um, 
and also all the workers that are working on this. So that would be including the uh, DCS Education Services team who are out there working this with our local field staff and finding out that, hey, there's a lot of feedback about the fact that this, the checklist and all the things that we have to take into consideration, um, they're well known at this point. We know exactly what we need to be taking into consideration. And that's more of a process rather than something that needs to be included in them on the checklist itself, um, which will then decrease the amount of time it takes to complete it as well as um, get it over to our um, counterparts in the local school point of contact. So, um, Lena, I actually have a, uh, a comment to make. Sure. Actually, two of them. While I have the mic, real quick, one thing I want to just uh, highlight is that collaborative nature of this process. It's not only collaborative on determining where the child should be best served educationally, but it's collaborative as far as the process itself goes. So um, if at all, if this process ever does not seem collaborative to you, please let us know that that is our intent. It's designed to get as much information from uh, key people in the process. It is not designed to be done to people. It's designed to be done with them and for them. So that, that's a key point. And what I will tell you about this process is it's different than in the past. In the past, uh, working in a foster care agency, we would place a child in a foster home and tell those foster parents, go and get that child enrolled in school immediately. And in most cases, that foster parent would take the child to their local school where they had sent their own kids or that's closest to them, and they would enroll the child there. But that wasn't always in the child's best interest because foster kids move a lot, and they would move school to school to school. So this process is very different. And so people that have worked in foster care for a long time might find this a bit cumbersome or a bit uncomfortable, but it is all about making a collaborative decision on what is best for the child not what is best for the foster parent, not what is most convenient for the foster parent, not what is just, this is what we've always done. Everything is based on what is in the best interest of the foster child. So thank you, Melina. Sure, no problem. I, I, and I totally agree with that. Um, we are one, wanting to make sure that our processes um, do include the voice of all parties. So one of the very first things that we look at is the child and parent voice. Um, what does the child want? Um, what does the parent want and why? Um, and um, we also want to make sure that while we do our internal collaboration, so we work with our, our foster, um, our family case managers, and how that works is we get a referral that says, hey, we've got a child that moved. Um, and do we need to do as a best interest? And so you'll hear that referred to as a bid best interest determination. Um, so then our family case manager will work with our education consultant to look at all the factors um, to be considered and, and not this, I'm going to give you a list of some of the things and it is not all inclusive, but we look at the child's voice the parent voice, the permanency plan, um, whether or not there are connections in that school for that child that is that are positive. And um, we look at whether or not um, there are special education needs, whether or not there's safety concerns, um, and whether or not um, the school 
that the schools are passing both both schools we look at their grades um, and we really look at the length of time that they've been in that school how many number how many school placements they've had how many home placements they've had because all of those things we've learned have a significant impact on the educational outcomes of foster population the um, typical process should take um, five instructional days and that's from beginning to transportation being set up um, the child should never be out of school so um, the entire time that we are working to make a best interest determination we uh, the the child stays in their school of origin until that best interest in, uh, determination has been made so um, should take five days and the child should never be out of school now there are situations that arise where we have a child that has moved and they are now in a foster placement that's three hours away from where they were. Of course, we are not going to say, yep, that child should drive three hours to get there because on bus it's now, you know, four and a half hours, if that, um, uh, possibly five or six hours. So we're not going to do that. Um, so we're not going to keep that child in their school of origin and we will try to be as quick as possible with um, that process. And that's part of why we want to make sure that we are um, looking at all the, the criteria of, you know, the very first thing is how far away are we? You know, uh, if it's a three hour drive, we, we pretty much can say, yeah, it's not in the best interest for that child to remain in that school unless it's a remote learning situation, then that really doesn't have any impact on it is that drive time. Um, so uh, that was to answer the question that was in the Q&A, by the way. Um, back to my slide. Um, once we do our internal process and talk with the family and our case manager and we complete the checklist, what we do is we send it on over to the local school point of contact. and we say, hey, school of, context, school of origin, here's what DCS thinks is our initial proposal of what we believe is the child's best interests. And then we say, if you agree, awesome, please sign this and let, you know, let us know when transportation will be put in place. If you don't agree, let's talk because it is a collaborative process. Everything that we want to do, our team, the whole premise of our team is to be that liaison between DCS as well as the local schools. Our team is all past educators. Um, they all have master degrees and higher, and um, they know that educational language. They understand that ed the, the education side as well as the social work side from child welfare. So um, what we do is we work together to make sure that we are promoting the educational stability of our children because we do believe that um, education is a path to permanency for our youth. Um, if I, I can highlight... Uh, terrible habit of jumping ahead on slides. <laughs> so I already discussed all this, so I, I apologize. Um, Elena, if I can highlight uh, on the previous slide, the, the difference between 
the role of family case manager who often knows all the details and the, the nitty gritty things of why a child came into care, the family case plan, uh, goals towards reunification, things like that, and the education uh, consultant, education, uh, uh, the DCS education consultant. Those are two different roles. And what I want to definitely leave you with is if you are involved in the process uh, of, of helping to get a child uh, into a new foster home and into a new school, you, uh, or if, if you're a school, you want to make sure the DCS education consultant is involved because a lot of the paperwork and so on um, will flow through them. And, and they have that educational piece and, and perspective that the family case managers do not. So just be aware that this educational consultant is a different person, a different role than the, the DCS family case manager. And, and both of those pieces can be working and should be working together in developing this best interest uh, process. So if um, I see there's a question in here about any way to make a school provide transportation. So the school is required to provide transportation um, by ESSA. So that is a requirement. So um, I would say that if you are not getting that um, provision, then I highly suggest you contact your education consultant from DCS and we can help. Um, and what I will do is um, get you the link to our map um, so that you will know who your education consultant is and how to reach them. Um, and I'll, po I'll post that in there for you, uh, Mr. Sh Mr. Shine. So um, the next further, step, pardon? Further on that point, Melina, is uh, that's a requirement of the Every Student Succeed Act is that every, every school has a written transportation plan to outline how they are going to address keeping kids in the school of best interest. So every school should have a plan. Uh, we're actually in the process of DOE of uh, going through a monitoring of all 410 schools uh, throughout the state, asking them, show us your plan, talk with us about your plan, and make sure you have a plan. So this isn't something you're scurrying to develop at the last second. You've got this, put this together, and, and this is in process, and, and this is something that you're aware of, and it's done collaboratively, so DCS knows about this, how you're gonna do this too because DCS has seen this and they are, they, they've signed off on it too. So we really are pushing the collaboration. We're, we're pushing this, this responsibility that schools have to provide that transportation. Excellent, thank you, Jeff. So um, I talked about uh, what, how we do our internal process. And so when we send it over to the local school, and we say, hey, do you agree with this? That local point of contact within the school then will get with their internal team and they will say, hey, we've got this. This is what DCS is recommending. Do we agree? And they will do that within five instructional days. That's the goal. Um, it should be much faster, um, should be within three days, but um, we understand that there are sometimes struggles with getting um, bus routes set up. So um, we do give to that five instructional day and that is the expectation and guidance through the Department of Education Transportation Director, Mike LaRocco. Um, and 
the other piece is, is if we have said, okay, we, we don't agree, uh, let's talk, and we continue to talk and we say, okay, we really can't come to an agreement, then we have a process that says, oh, we need to get more people involved in this discussion so that we can really look at um, all the perspectives engaged. And so what that is, is the ESSA dispute resolution process. And that um, either DCS or local school can request that process to be engaged. And when that is engaged, then we have the, um, the collaboration of the local POCs, as well as the superintendent, the director of transportation, our um, family case manager and supervisor, and then we have the state point of contacts for DOE and DCS. And hopefully, um, we're going to hear all the perspectives and we're going to come to an agreeable resolution. Um, anytime there's a dispute in process, then it is a matter of the child remains in that school of transport, excuse me, school of origin and transportation is to be provided by the school corporation. And that is in both federal and state law. Um, if we still cannot come to an agreeable resolution after having our ESSA dispute resolution process, the Every Student Succeeds Act gives the right to DCS to have the final decision regarding the youth educational best interests. And um, that means that it is my decision. I will tell you, I have only done that twice. And um, we actually don't have very many dispute resolution um, process re requests. I think, Jeff, how many have we had? Maybe 10 or 12? Yes, not, not very many at all, considering how many kids we have in foster care, over 16,000 students in foster care across the state. Yeah, so um, when you think about it that way, um, and only twice have, have I had to say, okay, we can't come to a resolution, and here's what um, we're, we're going to come down to making a decision. That, um, and, and it's not something that I do... Um, without a heavy heart. So it's always wanting to be as collaborative as possible. Um, so there's a question in the um, Q&A that asks, um, can you discuss how this process may become a bit more cumbersome when a child has an IEP and is coming from a mental health residency and or has not attended public school for an extended period of time? So uh, yes, I can. There's a lot of questions within that one. So we will start with IEP. Um, we will look at the IEP and we will look at um, case conference, what is the best interest of um, opinion of the case conference committee. And also we will engage with the folks at the mental health residency to find out what is um, what were the the safety concerns? What were the strategies that were used, and what are their recommendations as far as transitioning into a public school? And um, then the next piece is when a child hasn't attended a public school for an extended period of time, it reverts back to the very last public school the child ever attended, and that is the school of origin. Did I? get everything for you. 
hope so. So if not, yeah, Ms. Cornelius or Mr. Cornelius, if you could respond, if you need cl further clarification, please, please post. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so uh, I think we did the dispute resolution and Jeff. So as we alluded to earlier, there's uh, transportation is a requirement for getting foster children uh, to the school that is determined to be in their best interest through that collaboration. So it, again, it is not just uh, that a foster parent takes the child to their local school. That, that used to be the way things were done. Uh, it is not now. So sometimes foster parents, when they aren't aware of this, will go to their school I'll try to enroll the, the child and the school might say, I'm sorry, we can't enroll the child today. We have a new process to go through. Sometimes people take that as a, as a negative saying, wait, wait a second, we have to get this child in school. And, and we agree that child needs to be in school. But we also agree that there needs to be a process that's followed that is collaborative and determines not only what's uh, convenient for the foster parent, but, but moreover, what is in the child's best interest. And if, if keeping that child in their school of origin is in their best interest, and, it, and, it, and that's kind of the default. We try to keep the kids in their, in their school of origin when it's possible, because in most cases, that stability is going to be uh, a huge, uh, important piece for that child, because so much of the rest of their life is in upheaval, and they have no control. If we can give them a little bit of control and comfort in this one area, we try to do that. Uh, through that best interest determination process. But once that process is done, transportation is a requirement and, and schools just can't say, no, we're not gonna do this because um, it is a federal requirement. And so we have, we will work with them. We will develop a relationship. We will try to massage this into a constructive and productive process. Uh, if, it, if a school is slow to cooperate um, and that doesn't happen often, uh, then you know we will get a little bit um, more creative with uh, leveraging that that requirement. So, uh, but it is a requirement, and and we should all be working together. And these plans that we're seeing, these foster care transportation plans, are helping schools to articulate clearly the process by which they can do this. In addition, this was a federally unfunded plan um, or or element for transportation. So. Um, the schools weren't given extra money for this. Uh, and, and so it's, a, it's an unfunded mandate. And as, as such, it's a burden. But schools can identify foster care transportation as a Title I eligible expense. So they can work with their financial officers in the school to, if they receive Title I monies, uh, they can access those monies to help defray costs. They can also work with the local uh, or the transitional school corporation. And that is when a child is moved within foster care or placed into foster care, it's that, it's that school corporation in which the foster home lives or, or resides. So if the child were to go to the local school uh, in the foster home, that's the transitional school corp. And that, tra that school corporation has a, a stake in the game too. They, can, they should be willing to either share responsibility or share costs with the school of origin to make sure transportation is happening. So that can help defray the cost a little bit and the Department of Child Services, when they have availability of 4E federal funds, 
they have made those funds available through a transportation template uh, that we have available on our website. We have a separate template for both charter schools and for local education agencies. And those templates help to um, identify what are the, the costs that schools are going through to transport this child beyond normal transportation boundaries just to meet the requirements of the Every Student Succeed Act. So, so what are the extra uh, transportation costs? And then DCS reimburses, um, uh, reimburses with availability of those funds because those funds sometimes run out. But when those funds are available, they, they can reimburse based on a formula that we have created in that transportation template. So um, we've gotten a couple questions in the Q&A. Um, one of the questions was, um, is transportation required to be provided if the foster, <clears throat> excuse me, if the foster parent is um, totally fine with tra traveling to and from? So no, they don't have to provide transportation if the foster parent is willing and able. However, they are to be providing reimbursement for mileage. And if, um, if the foster parent deny, denies that and says, no, I don't need it, that's fine. Um, but the, the, it is part of, the, um, part of what is required in ESSA. So um, yes, you can explore that. Um, and as, as a matter of fact, in the written transportation plan that Jeff was just talking about, there are, are things that the school of origin do have to look at prior to seeking um, reimbursement through the agency, um, through the child welfare agency. Um, and alternative transportation is definitely something that we want to look at is how can we look outside of the box because we do understand that there is uh, bus driver shortages. There's, um, especially now we don't even know what that um, transportation is gonna look like now that we have COVID and social distancing to keep in mind while on buses. Um, so yes, we can look at a, a, that alternative transportation. Uh, I do caution when we look at Uber or um, any service like that because they do have any person traveling and transporting our children have to have the same background checks as required of any of the educational staff. Um, and if we're going to be contacting Uber or um, any other contracted out um, transportation provider, it would need to be a consistent person for continuity and a sense of safety for our children. Um, so think wisely, think safety when we're looking at those alternative transportation options. But yes, please do think outside the box because not everything is going to, um, it doesn't always have to be a bus. Not everything's gonna fit with a bus schedule or with, um, getting the children to and from school through a bus timely because another thing that we cannot do is reduce the instructional time due to a transportation route. What I will say is um, foster parents, while they can agree to transport, they do not have to. It's not a requirement of their, of their job. Um, if they can and feel like they, they can do that, and, and it won't have a, a negative effect on the placement, uh, then by all means that, that, that is a possibility. But we encourage the local education agency to kind of step through in their minds a process for what is our, what's our, the easiest way we can get a child to and from school, okay? It's existing bus routes. Do our bus routes 
come close to meeting where the child is, maybe or maybe not. Okay, what's plan B? Well, if that doesn't work, what's plan C? And we've tried to provide some options and, some, and think through some options, uh, and that's on our website as well, just to try to give schools that, that outside-the-box framework to, to reference if, if they are really only used to transporting in one way. An example might be if a school, if, there's, if their legal uh, uh, consultants uh, say it's okay for a school staff member, if they live in the area where the child is in foster care, it's okay for them to, to drive the, the child in their own vehicle. Some school corporations will allow that. And that, in that case, the school would contract with that uh, employee to provide those extra services. Some schools are saying, no, we will not do that. And that's where that local control comes in. So there are options out there, but it has to meet federal and state and then local uh, education agency uh, legal guidelines to, to make all these things work. Excellent. Um, also, I would say that um, the Director of Transportation, uh, DOE, created a really awesome transportation checklist to help guide schools in thinking about how to um, implement these type of transportation requirements and how to do it timely and most cost efficiently. And it's an amazing resource. So um, that's on the DOE website as well. Um, so the next slide, Jeff and I, we kind of bounce back and forth on this one. Um, what I will say is, yes, Every Student Succeeds Act, as well as Indiana Code, says that when a child is um, brought to a school and asked to be enrolled, the school has the responsibility to immediately enroll. However, if you do not have an SOPOC checklist in agreement, it is not a denial of enrollment to contact your DCSPOC and say, hey, I haven't received any, anything that says we should be, we, we collaborated to make this determination. That is not denying enrollment, that is getting further data to make sure that you are enrolling the child in the right school. Um, the reason that we really wanna make sure that we understand that is because that fear of not violating that law is, is real. And also at the same time, as soon as a child is enrolled in a school, they do not even have to attend. But as soon as they are enrolled, the school that enrolls is now the school of enrollment, whether the child is actually even attended an hour. And so that makes them now responsible for all transportation costs, et cetera. Jeff, did I miss anything? No, I think you did a good job of highlighting uh, immediate, uh, and that immediate is once the best interest determination process has completed, that we're enrolling the child in the environment is truly in their best interest. Um, once that's determined, it's immediate from that point forward. Um, we have a question in the um, Q&A that says, uh, can you share the website for the state point of contacts for each high school? So um, the local school point of contacts are by school corporation. There's one per corporation, and that can be found on the DOE's website. And the number of foster youth enrolled, um, it can be done through a um, 
the school can pull that information by doing a direct certification through the free and reduced lunch program and look for the uh, classification of W. That information is updated monthly with the department of, between the Department of Child Services and the Department of Education. And I can post the DOE's website in my answer for you. Jeff, do you want to start with the data report? Okay. So for the first time ever, um, Every Student Succeed Act required uh, schools and states to start looking at uh, how foster children compared uh, academically and behaviorally to children not in foster care. Uh, there was a, a hunch for, for many uh, working in foster care that these kids, because they moved around so much and because they've suffered uh, such trauma in their lives, um, some kids more than others, but just, just the fact of being removed out of your, your biological family and put in a family's home, you know, nothing about possibly being separated from your siblings, that's traumatic. And so it, it's no wonder uh, that, that these kids uh, don't perform as well academically. So the data, data we started to uh, gather and then report in 2017-18 and then more recently in 2018-19 talks to that and it, um, it, it breaks out uh, information about graduation rates for children in foster care versus children not in foster care. It talks about um, kind of behavioral interventions and it breaks it down further by grade level, uh, by uh, children on free and reduced lunch, children not on free and reduced lunch. Uh, it breaks it down by, um, by racial groups as well. So uh, some of that was uh, required as a further step beyond federal legislation, which was ESSA. Indiana in 2018 said, we wanna know even more about our foster kids and the data, break it down even further for us. So um, the State Board of Education, the Indiana State Board of Education, um, receives a, uh, a report each year that is a collaborative effort from Department of Education and Department of Child Services. And that report is submitted to them. They look it over, they make uh, changes here and there, they ask questions, and then they review and approve that. And that report uh, for the second year is on their website. And that was just approved uh, in the May uh, State Board of Education meeting last week. So um, that is a, it's a, a document that is available that highlights exactly how foster children perform less well academically and have a higher incidence of behavior uh, problem than children not in foster care. And, and it's, it's, it's shocking and startling in many ways. But it does give us some data to dig in further to say, we can't just ignore this population. So the Every Student Succeed Act started, started this process. This data reporting and the further Indiana uh, uh, disaggregation of the data helps to give us data on which schools are doing this well and how do we then uh, try to support these students uh, to understand that, yes, they have a lot going against them, but we can understand that we can support them in different ways. And so we are working through this data to get a better picture of foster kids. And, and our goal is to make them perform every bit as well as any other child in Indiana, uh, as far as academically and behaviorally. Uh, 
Uh, but I can also say uh, on that, that last slide there was um, the Department of Child Services and Department of Education are, are working uh, very uh, aggressively to try to make sure we are uh, exploring data in the most realistic way. So um, we, we have our key data people that are involved in that process, but we are also starting to dig down to look at how each school district is, is um, identifying and working with their foster kids based on the data, the number of students they have in foster care and how those students are performing. So it's an ongoing process, but we are actively involved in that process. And a foster care education stakeholder group has been put together uh, it's a cross-collaborative group from many agencies across the state, private and, and state level. And we look at uh, issues that address or impact a child's academic and behavioral performance and their interaction with schools to try to enhance and, and uh, improve that, that functioning and their overall academic success. Okay, we've got a question. What is the timeline that the district point of contact should expect to see paperwork for when a student's placement changes? So um, the school notification should occur within three, three days. So within 72 hours, you should be notified that a placement has either occurred or changed. Um, very shortly after that, you should then receive the ESSA collaboration request, which is the um, checklist from your education consultant. And, <clears throat> excuse me, now I will say that we are not perfect. Um, we are working on that. However, um, we ask that if you aren't receiving the school notification form, which is a state form, um, from when, when a child's placement has changed, then please contact us and ask us, say, I'm not receiving them, why? Um, you can contact your local office, um, local office director, or you can contact your local education consultant. And what we can do is work to get that to you. Um, but uh, we, are, we are supposed to be getting that, to, that notification to you within three days, which then starts the ESSA discussions. Uh, the next question in there is, do you have families that on that public-private interagency work group? Um, Jeff, I will let you answer that because I think we do, but I'm not 100% because you, you're, you took lead on that particular project. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we have a couple foster parents on that, on that group. We also have um, we're working with the Department of Child Services to identify some biological families who were previously involved with DCS but have a closed case now. Uh, so they can bring that perspective of what's it like to be a, a biological family who might have educational rights still for their kid, but just don't have that child in their home while the child's in foster care. So we, we are gaining that perspective. DCS is going to help us identify those people. Um, and we also have... Um, a former foster child uh, who has since graduated from foster care and transitioned out of foster care successfully. And he brings that perspective as well to that, to that group. So we think we have a pretty good mixture, but if you have ideas or thoughts on, on people that might be considered for that group, you certainly can give that to me and we'll discuss it with the group and see if that might be a good addition to bringing a more comprehensive viewpoint 
to that work. So, um, Jeff, I'm not sure if you could see the Q&A, but um, the response was, Thank that's excellent news. Thank you for making sure that they are included, especially the foster and biological families and a foster, former foster child. And um, I, I, I totally agree. Jeff and I are, are very diligent in making sure that we include all the voices um, to all the, the, the people that are impacted by these decisions and to really get a, a whole picture of what, um, not, not just what we as the, the outsiders looking in think someone needs, but really truly what is the true story and what do they really feel that they needed that would have been a better support. What I will say, a value of this, uh, this type of presentation is not only for what you can do with it, and we hope it is useful to anybody participating today, but we hope that you'll, you'll take the information, you'll take our contact, and you'll take some of the things that you've shared and share it with other people that may benefit as well. And so you know, it's that exponential impact that we hope to have because there are still a lot of pockets of people that are not aware of the changes that are required by the Every Student Succeed Act. And, if we go back to the reason for the changes, it's because foster kids have a harder time uh, doing well academically and behaviorally in school. They have a lot going on in their lives. So much is beyond their control. They have, uh, they have traumatic events and, and things like that, that we gotta do everything we can to try to serve them and understand that and, and make sure we're, we're providing the best and most stable educational opportunities for them. And that's what drives all of the changes all of the information we've discussed today should be viewed through that lens. And so that kind of leads into the question that's now um, up, Jeff, is um, uh, Robert Skirka asked, uh, are extracurricular activities, sports clubs, et cetera, considered in making the best um, interest determination um, in school placement? And 100% yes, they are. Um, and understanding that transportation is also um, difficult for those um, types of engagement, uh, but they are also required for our population as well. So um, we do definitely take that into consideration because that's part of what keeps a child bonded and also allows continuity and stability um, to be successful in their educational outcomes. Um, a lot of children that are engaged in those type of extracurricular activities, they really depend on that um, as part of their, um, I, I hate to say this, but as their sense of being in the norm, um, being like everyone else when other parts of their life is so very much not like everyone else. This is Jill Summerlott, and I just want to remind our participants so please post your questions and answer those questions in the question and answer box. Um, this is a wonderful time to have um, those questions answered by Jeff and Melena. Um, so please feel free to do that. Um, I am watching Facebook Live and have not had any questions pop up from there. So um, again, please post those questions. So the slide that you see on the screen right now, um, again, is our contact information. Um, 
don't be shy about using that. Share that with anybody that you want to. And in fact, uh, Malena and I have been responsive. We've come to communities. We've gone to foster care agencies. We've gone to schools. Um, we're willing to talk with DCS offices. We're open to sharing this information with anybody and everybody to make sure that they're aware of it and to bring them into the informational loop for how we better support foster kids. So please do share it and please do uh, let us know if there is information that you found valuable and if you feel like we could uh, serve you, we're happy to try to figure out how we can do that best. Yeah, uh, and to add to that, Jeff, um, we, we actually, we've gone many times on evening and weekends so to do these trainings. So, um, because we understand that not everyone is available during working hours and that this information is important. So um, just know that we are, are quite flexible with our time to make sure that we are getting out there to get to you when it's most convenient to you. At this time, I don't see any more questions posted in the question and answer box. Again, I would just like to remind everyone, um, Jeff and Melena's information is posted um, up there on the screen for you. Um, we do have a, um, Melena, we do have a question that just did come up, if you would like to address it. Sure, it says, uh, uh, one of the biggest challenges in working with foster students that are out of our county is having the same understanding of how this process works. Glad to read that the POC checklist will be streamlined, but what can we do to be more aligned in our understanding of how this process should work? Um, so I will tell you that um, within my own team, um, we, we came to understand that um, the process maybe is not similar, not being done in the same exact way uh, throughout the state. So we are working to standardize our own um, team in providing that customer service so that it is more aligned no matter which county and no matter which education consultant you work with. But also um, Jeff and I are working to develop a training for the local schools so that the local schools have some continuity and understanding um, so that they can work their process internally um, with more streamlined steps. Um, it says you mentioned a way to pull, uh, I'm sorry, there's another question. You mentioned a way to pull info to find foster students within the district. So um, what that is, is the direct certification for the free and reduced lunch program. And the school can pull the direct certification report and by looking at that, each child has a, a designated letter to tell you whether or not um, they are uh, eligible for that and foster children have the letter W. And you can get more information on that. DOE has a memo on that um, and it's, I believe it's called Foster Youth and it was written by Julie Sutton. Emily, if I can further uh, talk about that, uh, there's a, an active group um, with one of the local uh, suburban Indianapolis schools that is working with DCS and DOE to try to make that process even more, to build a model to make that process more accessible 
And so we are working on that right now. And as that becomes available, we'll make sure we get that process out there. But schools are not required to go in and check that direct certification report. So it's, it's, it's an information as needed. Um, some schools will, will like to do this. Some schools will choose maybe not to do it, but we're gonna try to make that easier to do so that we can have a, a more real-time understanding of who the foster kids are in our school, how we're serving them, things like that. You do have a comment, this would be a great training, or that would be a great training, I think talking about the registration piece for registrars and secretaries of schools. We yes. have actually done this training, um, in fact, up in the kind of the Lake County area uh, with the, the support staff. A lot of the, the, the frontline people who might be involved in, in seeing a, a foster child walk in the door, we've done this training with them. And, and so we're going to try to develop a library of trainings that we're hoping to then roll out as best practice across the state to try to impact the way that we work with foster kids and hopefully get them achieving and behaving in ways that are more consistent with your, your average non-foster student. I'm not seeing any more questions at this time. Well, spoke too soon. <laughs> Will children, siblings, or non-related be placed in more than one school district? Uh, that depends on um, so many different criteria. We try really hard not to separate the siblings. Um, however, uh, that is really dependent on the situation, what type of case, who the perpetrator is, what's in the best interest, what type of relationships are between the siblings. Um, and um, whether or not it would be um, a positive or negative experience to have them in the same school. What I will say in addition is sometimes it's just a fact that we don't have enough foster homes to try to, to meet the needs of all the kids. So if a foster home is only equipped to work with younger kids and there's an older sibling, and that's the only foster home we have available. Sometimes we have to work with what we have. Uh, so there, there, there's some of this we can't do anything about. We need more foster parents. So if this is a takeaway that you can, you can um, share with other people, if there are people you know that would consider foster care, we always need more good foster homes. And the more homes we have allow us to consider keeping kids together and keeping kids together uh, in more in areas that are closer to their school of origin, things like that. That is 100% correct. Thank you so much for that plug, Jeff. And um, <laughs> we definitely do need more foster homes and um, good people to uh, spread the word as well as um, become licensed. Um, so if you're interested, there's a lot of really great children that would appreciate your care and open arms. Okay, I'm not seeing any further questions. I'm going to share my screen and do a plug for um, InSource, a little bit about us. Um, Jill? 
Yes, the screen that you see up here is our contact screen. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact us at InSource. Our South Bend office is our central office, and it is at 800-332-4433. Or you can contact us at InSource at InSource.org. Or you can visit our website at InSource.org, where you will find um, the archived webinars that we um, do every two weeks. Um, we will have um, this webinar, excuse me, up and archived, but please give us, um, it takes sometimes up to a week to get it done, but um, we do our due diligence to make sure that it is there. At this time, again, I'm not seeing any questions for Milena or Jeff. Please, um, if there's anything that we can answer right now, please post that before we do leave this. We do still have a little bit of time left. Um, but I, I, I would like to just thank Jeff and Marlena for coming together today, or Melina for coming together today and um, being here. This has been a wonderful information that I truly enjoy. I'm not a foster parent myself, um, but I truly enjoy uh, being a part of the community and um, getting the information out there. You're most welcome. We're so happy to be here. and. Um, I, and I, I always speak on behalf of Jeff, and I'm so sorry. I, I should stop doing that. But when you know, I, when you work as closely as we do, uh, he does that for me too. Um, but we just really appreciate being invited to speak on on this topic, and we are just so happy to help any way we can. I, I thank each one of you for taking time today, and. Uh, the emphasis we placed on collaboration uh, throughout this process. We want to just uh, roll that over into this conversation. This serving kids, serving kids in foster care throughout the state is uh, collaborative in nature. So thank you for adding your voice and giving us your time to learn about this. And please let us know how we can be of, a more, be of more assistance to you.